immoral to record me without my permission, John. Okay. <laughs> Your entire apartment is actually wired for sound. Well, everything I say is important and everything I do, so we need a record of it. <laughs> uh, I'm the big... Nixon of Sunnyside, Queens. That's my nickname. <laughs> Uh, welcome everybody to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs. I'm here with Chris Funderberg. And... Hi. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. Chris, how are you? Our, our intro rapports keep getting better and better. I know. I think that we're really getting a knack for this finally. Um, we are going to be talking about a film from 1932 by Jean Renoir. It is called La Nuit du Carrefour. And right at the top, I think we have to apologize for all the terrible pronunciations you're going this, to be hearing over this the This is the pink smoke promise. We will never pronounce French words correctly. We will never do it. That is the pink smoke guarantee. We won't put like a little Frenchiness on it like John tried to do there. We're not going to do that anymore, John. The closest it'll get is Jean Renoir. We will pronounce it not Jean Renoir, Jean Renoir. I think that's the closest. You're not going to get any Jean Renoir from us. We're not going to go full Terrence Rafferty. And, you know, try and blend in to the streets of Piaget. Huh? <laughs> Although I think this podcast could use more <laughs> don't you? I can't guarantee that personally. I've been working on Duvivier like all week. <laughs> Jacques Becker. He's Jack Becker. Jack Becker from here on out. Jack, Jack Beckers. Jack, Jack Becker will be referred to him as. <laughs> Uh, or we could just call it Night at the Crossroads, which is the English translation. But uh, uh, Chris, you had the idea to talk about this movie. Why this one partic in particular? Uh, it's a broad swath, but black and white French gang and crime movies. Uh, yes. It's a genre that, that I really, really love. And I also am wanting to do this movie. It's based on a novel by George Simenon, the, the Belgian writer who is incredibly prolific. We'll talk about him more. Uh, I love Simenon. He's not as well known in the United States. It's a Jean Renoir movie. Jean Renoir I find to be a bit of a mystery. Uh, and those sort of things coming together, I wanted to talk about it. Also, uh, a few critics that I really admire, like Andre Bazan and uh, and. Jean-Luc Godard have incredibly high praise for this film. And what interested me about this film and attracted me to it is it's sort of famously the unknown Renoir film from the 30s. Basically, every other Renoir film from the 30s is completely canonized, completely gone over, uh, completely looked into. Even the, the one about the baby not shitting has a Criterion edition. <laughs> you know what I mean? He made a movie, his first sound movie, is about a guy who manufactures laxatives and to show it off, he gives it to a baby which refuses to shit. And that movie has a Criterion edition, whereas this movie is sort of, it's not lost to history, but there's no uh, American DVD release of it with subtitles, uh, I think. It's certainly hard to find. It's not streaming anywhere. It's not in streaming service. You don't see it screened in theaters ever. This is a movie that I've spent a lot of time looking for to see theatrically because I don't like to see movies on my TV for the first time. I live in New York, so I can see movies in the theater. I know it's obnoxious, but that's why I'm here. Um, and so I just wanted to dig into it with you. I feel like Renoir is somebody who's interesting, and this is like some of the last bit of unexplored territory for him. And then on top of that, I will add that 
I fucking love this movie. This might be my very favorite Renoir movie. It's definitely top three. It's definitely top three. I I, didn't want to hear, before we recorded, I didn't want to hear your thoughts on that, but that is, I have to say, even that, uh, I did not expect. Yeah, I mean, it's probably number three. You know, if I'm being honest, <laughs> I can I can talk myself into it. I think it's a perfect um, encapsulation of Simenon in some ways. But this this is going sort of um, sort of in a jagged sort of way. You you tell me uh, why did you? <laughs> what was your reaction to me wanting to do this film? Are you on the same page with me, or what was your thoughts for selecting it? Oh, well, I also love this film. And I was really surprised uh, when you brought it up because it just, it seemed random. But when you look at Renoir's output from the 30s, and again, super canonized uh, output, it really is the outlier in so many ways. I mean, it's the one that is indisputably, you know, within a genre, which is a, a detective movie coming from a specific crime book. And I guess this is the first uh, Simonon adaptation ever, right? This is the first time. Uh, and oh, has- shit of like dozens and dozens since then, but this is the first attempt at it. Yeah. And and, we're good buddies. And it should be said, Simenon for American audiences, I don't think understand he's Europe's Agatha Christie. He's that big. He wrote 200 novels, I think about 75 Magret novels based on his famous detector, Inspector, Inspector Magret, uh, 150 novellas. He's a massive figure. Sherlock Holmes is probably as famous as a Spectre Magret in Europe. You know, that's an overstatement, but certainly Hercule Poirot and uh, and Spectre Magret, I think are figures of comparable size and notoriety in Europe, that this is a really uh, monumental uh, uh, character, you know, that he's sort of a towering figure in literature over there, especially crime literature. I shouldn't say, you know, quote unquote, real literature, but crime fiction and (laughs) genre fiction. But sorry to interrupt, go on. No, yeah, but before we dive right into it, I know we're both, uh, you know, enthusiastic about uh, getting into it. Uh, uh, let me just attempt to kind of set up what what the the basic plot of this is, even though at the end it will almost not matter. Uh, it's <laughs> uh, set at uh, the uh, of Rainville Crossroads, which is a suburb uh, of three houses, basically, you know, and one of them kind of serves as a gas station. Uh, it's in this suburb that a Jewish diamond merchant named Goldberg is found dead in a car, which is weirdly placed in the wrong garage. And from that point on, uh, McGray and the, uh, his, uh, and his fellow policemen, co- you know, come into the town and they're pretty much trying to decide who done it. And the main suspect, Carl Anderson, a one-eyed Danish fabric designer, pretty much turns out to be the only one who didn't do it, or at least was yes. not involved uh, in this uh, conspiracy. And, it and turns once out again, there's so much going on in this yeah, town. At the beginning, always, we do spoilers. We discuss things in depth. If you're interested, go read the book, I would say, and see the movie. The book's very, very short, although we're mainly talking about the movie today. But go on, John. Right. So that's basically it. And kind of just right off the, uh, you know, what you notice about it immediately is that Renoir is being much more experimental with this film, I think, than he did with any of his other films, which is kind of a weird position to to take because obviously La Chienne and Boudose from Drowning were his two films previous to this, uh, made in 1931, coming right off his uh, right into the sound era. And they feel those two films feel very silent movie, don't they? I mean, they have like, you know, 
silent movie uh, acting in them. Yes, and, they uh, have they have Max Senate framing, especially Bugose yes. from Drowning is very, Renoir was famously, or I think a little under the radar famously, hugely inspired by the silent comedians. And he would have his DPs and cast and crew watch Max Senate films to, to show them what he wanted them to do. And Boudot in particular feels like a silent comedy that happens to have words. Exactly. And so this one, you could definitely feel he was restless to kind of like get out there and try different things. There's just, I mean, when you see the shot where uh, they introduce the kind of femme fatale character, Else, when she comes into the room, and there's this big camera movement that moves from the doorway and comes all the way over into a close-up. After you've just watched La Chienne and Boudot, you're like, whoa, it really feels like seeing the roof for the first time in Citizen Kane sort of thing, where you definitely see where Renoir is. He wants to like experiment with shadow and darkness. He wants to kind of get out of the, the sound uh, stage. He wants to get off the set. So there's like a, an experimentation going on, which I think he admits wasn't 100% uh, successful. <laughs> you know, there's a, a mythology behind this film that two of the reels were actually lost which a lot of people kind of agree was just Renoir uh, making apologies for the plot getting completely confusing by the end. Um, but I think See, that's the reason the was he was so much yeah. more interested in atmosphere than he was in actually solving this crime. And that I think makes the film more interesting. Yes, yes. And I would also say that it's hard for me to know how confusing the plot is because I'm familiar with the book and know what is happening at every moment and familiar with the Magret books where I know who that guy is, who the other person is. And fascinatingly, Renoir goes out of his way to try and clarify things in, in the movie that are left very casual uh, in the book to that he makes the character of Jojo, who's like a, a secondary mechanic, um, a character early. You hear the name Jojo in the first half of the book because Simonon wrote so prolifically, he does the haphazard thing of introducing characters late when he needs them to keep plot things chugging along. Mm. Um, and so Renoir tries to smooth a lot of that out and making the killer, there's a few, there's only a few major changes. It, it hues very close to the book. The biggest one Renoir makes is making the actual shooter in the book it's some Italian guy that we never see or hear about before he's caught. He's just a, the, the, the murder plot is that uh, you have Carl Anderson, who's the Danish man with the monocle, who's accused of the crime initially and sort of impresses Magret with his resilience and unwillingness to be broken during interrogation. You have his sister, who he keeps locked in her room every single night, Elsie, and she's locked in her room. Then you have, there's only three houses at this crossroads, as the movie and the book make a big point of. You have a garage where a mechanic works, uh, Oscar and his wife and their mechanic, Jojo, right? And a few other sort of miscellaneous mechanics. And then you have the third house, the Michonette household, which is the portly Mr. Michonette. Oh, and since he's portly, boy, he's in a Renoir film. He's going to be the villain. (laughs) Who's the bad guy in a Renoir movie? The fat one you know from the start that they, he must have read this book and been like, I can adapt it. The bad guy's fat, right? <laughs> one of Renoir's favorite things is that the portly greasy man is one of the or bad lanky, Or lanky and bald like in Tony. <laughs> 
That guy's tubby though too. That dude's tubby. He's definitely like a baby face. He's broad. He's broad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's he's you know that that not really fat. They're like he's, tubby. They're he's tubby. definitely weak. He's definitely a weak suck. You know, like the way he gets <laughs> yeah. just bested in fights. And he makes this like eh noise in that first fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, love Tony. Tony, we'll talk about later, is the closest relative in Renoir's uh, filmography to this movie, I think. I don't want to get too far off. Let me lay out the third household as the Missionette household. Oh yeah, sorry, go right ahead. Yeah, as the Missionette household. And the plot of the movie is is this, uh, in the book, is that Elsie is not actually Carl's brother. She's actually a a fallen woman and and a a criminal who is sort of rescued from a life of depravity by Carl, who is a real um, uh, aristocrat, who comes from a real aristocratic background. And that's why he locks her in the room at night. She's worried she's going to get The same tutor as the prince. Exactly. And... um, from there, when they move to this small town, he's trying to get her away from trouble. And she quickly realizes that Oscar uh, at his garage is uh, sort of like a middleman in a drug running and fencing scheme that he's using the tires and the trucks coming and going to the small town to move uh, illicit illegal goods around the country. And they hook up together and uh, she realizes that this guy she used to know, Goldberg, has been involved in a diamond heist. And she says, I have a friend who moves stolen merchandise. He has a garage out here. Uh, we're old friends, uh, implied they used to be lovers, her and Goldberg. Come out here and see me, and we'll figure out a way to move your diamonds with Oscar. They come out, and the plan actually is he's going to bring the diamonds out, and we'll fucking kill him. So when... Goldberg comes out there, they kill him. Michonette, who's in love with Elsie, gets drawn into the plot. Uh, That's why his car is used to switch that. And the whole idea is we'll make this all so confusing and everyone's so embroiled that the police won't be able to unravel it. Magret, of course, unravels it. And then they find out, because everybody keeps getting shot. One of the great shocks of the movie in the book is Goldberg's wife shows up to identify the body and talk to Magret. And the moment she steps out of her taxi, shot in the head. It's a very graphic, brutal scene in the book and a genuine shock when it happens. Because Magret's, a lot of Magret books are him sort of hanging around. That's one of the qualities I love about Magret books is just mm-hmm, Magret yeah. hanging around, having a sandwich and falling asleep against a wall. That's like, the, that's like the ultimate, is he's like, well, I really need to go look at a field where the shooter was, and then he has his sandwich and falls asleep against a wall, right? That's like the great, great Magret stuff. And somehow it's great for his process. So they're waiting around, and the moment she shows up, just gets rifled in the head. Carl Anderson, uh, later in the book, they think he's trying to escape uh, detection, but he's actually been kidnapped and shot and left for dead, barely gets away from being kidnapped, shot, and left for dead, returns home, and the moment he gets home, he's shot again by another shooter, right? And Which so, is something we should point out. In the movie, you don't see. I mean, we hear about that all after the fact. It seems like important information that, you know, uh, somebody disguises himself as a cop and lures him away from the station and tries to kill him, but we, we only hear all of this from him after the fact. Yes, and same way in the book. You hear it all after the fact in the okay. book as well. Interesting. The, all right. the book is a lot about, most of the Magret books are him standing around putting the pieces together slowly, 
right? Like any, any detective novel, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of detective novels, which is why in general, I'm not a fan of the genre, are people hanging around after interesting things have happened and sort of looking at the interesting thing that happened and trying to, to pull it apart. In the book, there's another accomplice who we don't see until he's arrested. There's a drive-by scene, right? And Magret's like, go arrest these fuckheads who think they can just drive up and try and shoot us up. And so the police go get these guys. And the shooter is just some Italian guy who's in the gang. That's all we know about him, is that he's the one who's going to get the death penalty. He's just some Italian guy. And I actually love the way it unfolds, where the most important person in the conspiracy is somebody we don't see from Magret's perspective, which is how a lot of police work is, is that you don't know who you're after until you find them, and then it's over. You know, mm -hmm. and I actually like that that detail about it. I really like the rhythms of Magret stuff. In the movie, the shooter is changed to Elsie's real husband. That she and Carl are just an item, but her, it's really her husband who who the shooter is. So that's another way in which he ties to clarify it and tighten and tighten the story. The only other big change, really, is that in the book she gets ropes mission at and who's giving signals to the to the uh trucks coming and going from the garage by leaving the light in his upstairs window on or off that why trucks mm -hmm. know whether it's safe to come and pick up stuff and go by sleeping with them she's sleeping with everybody she's sleeping with oscar she's sleeping with carl it's i think she's sleeping with the italian too she's definitely sleeping with mission in the movie the portly neighbor Missionette is not sleeping with her. He wants to, but she's rejected him, right? He's just obsessed with her. Yeah. Yeah. That's the very Renoir change is like, this woman doesn't want to sleep with a fat. So like all of his movies are about like women who don't want to sleep with the gross guy. That's so many of his movies. But, um, but in the book, he's like a jealously, insanely possessive lover who really believed she was in love with him and was going to run away with him using the money from the diamonds. So the last quarter of the book is him trying to kill her. He like tackles her down a dry well. He's also the one who shot Carl Anderson. He's almost strangled her to death. He shoots at Magret. Once they're arrested, there's a few great moments where he's got the whole gang together and Michonette keeps trying to uh, when there's an opportune moment, spring forth and strangle Elsie again. Like when you think it's over, Missionette is like still trying to fucking kill her and like can't control his rage. And those are basically the only changes from the book. And they sound like big changes, but they're more sort of, because of the way the story unfolds, they're more like surface changes than structural changes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you're right. They're very Renoir changes. I think the Missionettes think, especially in the movie, he poisons uh, two bottles of beer and leaves them for else yes. to, to drink. It's a moment that seems very diabolical, but when it actually happens, McGray basically is like, oh, you didn't drink that much. You'll be fine. It almost doesn't matter yes. that this happened. And that's a very Renoir touch. It's a very comedic touch, I think, to have this kind of pathetic, obsessive guy running around trying to poison people and being so inefficient at it that the inspector is like, it doesn't even matter who tried to do that. Yeah, you the know? book, he, he jams a wooden spoon down her throat and she throws it up immediately. And kind of, and it's one of those things, their interaction is very, Renoir does a little of it, but it's like tenuously erotic, where Magret keeps going, oh, am I into this lady? You know, um, like what's, what's happening here? I feel, I feel strange. The exact line is, 
she was reefed in what American movies portray as sex appeal, right? Which is a great line about Magret's sort of relation to it. I also think it's funny that both in the book and the movie, because of the American uh, like cliche of French people is those sexy French people. Huh? And in the book and the movie, it's French people being like, these Danish people are too sexy. What's up with the Danes being so oversexed, these sexy Danes, you know, which I think is a, is a funny uh, flip for it. Which is another way that Renoir kind of sabotages the narrative by having the, um, when they suspect the Danes of having stolen the car right off the bat, they say, the brother and sister, all that we know, they're really not brother and sister. And somebody yeah. says, you know, she's a looker. She's a real good looker. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's like we're getting all this information right up. It's like it's not going to be a big twist and a big shock later on when it t- turns out they're not actually related. Well, I don't think I don't think Simonon's ever trying to shock you with a twist, and I know Renoir is not. Um, yeah. And I think that why I love this movie uh, is that I think there's an incredible synergy between what Simonon wants to do as an artist and what Renoir wants to do as an artist. And in fact, the the famous Simonon quote is, my motto, to the extent that I have one, has been noted often enough, and I've always conformed to it. It's the one I've given to old Magret, who resembles me in certain points. Understand and judge not. Right? Mm -hmm. That might as well be Renoir saying that. You know, that that is very much uh, the Renoir perspective, especially because Renoir, as Truffaut points out, deals in the same kind of stories over and over. That's about, they're generally one man caught between three women or one woman caught between three men, right? Sometimes sometimes the woman is a train. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Sometimes the woman is Lisan, the hottest and most unpredictable train of all, and the one who ultimately kills him. Um... (laughs) We're talking about Labette Humane. Uh, and I think that that's true too, that if you have those sort of uh, love quadrangles, love squares, that seems like a bad way of describing this, <laughs> um, that he's not judgmental, that it's very, uh, that he's both, he finds sympathy for everybody. And one of the things that I think is really remarkable about Renoir's films is you take a movie like La Chienne, which uh, other versions of it certainly. And an approach to that story is you have this cuckolded painter who's getting humiliated by a mistress who doesn't love him. He kills her and the murder gets pinned on the mistress's boyfriend who's a scumbag who's been taking advantage of her. The end noir story. Well, Renoir goes, no, there's like 12 to 15 minutes of movie left. And we're going to show you how as um, reprehensible as Day Day, the boyfriend is, he actually doesn't deserve what's happening to him. He didn't kill her. And there is something cosmically unfair about what's happening to this horrible person now. And maybe if you never get full sympathy for Dede, who's a scumbag, it drains the joy of victory out of it. It doesn't feel like a moral victory uh, for, for the painter, for uh, Michelle Simon's character. Um, well, at the and same then, time, Renoir can't help but make things comedy of errors, right? Which yes. is why, you know, he opens uh, La Chienne with the puppet show where they specifically say, this is neither a comedy nor a tragedy. And yeah. then ends it with... It is not a moral of, tale. Right. And it ends with the very goofy scene of the two vagrants, right? Who are going to... He doesn't notice his painting being loaded into the car, but he finds, you know, 20 francs 
on the yeah. on the ground and they're going to go off and have dinner together you know it's and that whole subplot involving the old uh the veteran husband who suddenly shows up again is obviously very comedic and fun yeah. um so he kind of undermines the idea of you know the the dourness of the tragedy with with comedy he can't help do it which is why rules of the game with its ending of the wrong person accidentally getting killed is sort of the ultimate renoir you know the, that that ridiculousness kind of thrown into the sort of grimness of the situation and that there's actually you know a death involved or the opening shot of budose from drowning in which it's the the satyrish man with the pan flute chasing the woman across the like greek stage proscenium right Mm -hmm. and then he turns it into an oafish comedy i think that's renoir's mission statement as like i'm going to give you greek tragedy done as a goofball comedy and i think renoir does that over and over and over again except in a few films which i happen to think are his best films which are night at the crossroads tony grand illusion you know or his worst films he also doesn't do it in labette humane and i think he never figures out labette humane yeah that that one that one suffers from its humorlessness i agree yeah and he keeps, and he, even he wasn't sure about that one. I'd have to dig up the quote, but there's a quote from him that's like, yeah, I read the book and I was like, I don't know if this can ever work, but maybe if you have Gaban standing on the hillside with the grass blowing behind him, yeah, maybe people right. would believe it. And you're like, no, they do not. That was the wrong <laughs> move for that one. Yeah, a lot of people think of uh, Bet Humane as like his, like a dream project of his, but really it was Gaban's dream project and he brought him on board you know, to be like, this is the guy who should direct this. And yeah, I think Renoir kind of struggles with it a little bit and uh, makes it too much of a Hollywood style melodrama that it should be. And you know what I stylized, you know what I think the tell is in Hmm. that humane, that oppressive uh, high classical score, whereas he loves avoiding scores on his movies and loves to have diegetic music as much as possible to have somebody actually in the scene or a music box generating the music and building sequences around them. You know, the sequence at the end of La Chienne with the street performers, the sequence at the end of Elena and her men with the street performers, you know, the, that the music box or the phonograph, the entire story of Night at the Crossroads hinges on the photograph sound on, on him hearing on the phonograph, the song, the Italian song that he then hears Oscar playing on a squeeze box. And that's how he connects them together, right? This Italian right. tune that he then hears Oscar playing on the squeeze box. Like he even loves the opening, to- Yeah, even the opening music that's interspersed with the blowtorch and the screeching cars, you know, it's kind of automatically refuting a score. Awesome. Know? It's so awesome, that opening. And it's so Godard, right? It's the Absolutely. most Godardian thing I've ever heard that was not done by Godard. Like the music intercut with gunshots, back to the music, then the sound of welding, all of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, to me, my question to you, and I'll talk about it, I want to ask you, what's your relationship to Renoir? What do you think of Renoir in a sort of general way? And then on top of that, where do you locate this film within that? Well, yeah, that's what's interesting about it, right? I mean, uh, when I think about Renoir and I look at his uh, films from the 30s, it's hard not to think, wow, he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, just these films that he did in the 30s were just incredible, even films that weren't 100% successful. And I'm not a gigantic fan of Rules of the Game, uh, but I would never, you know, say it doesn't belong in the pantheon of classic films and canonized films. Um 
And then, of course, the war happens. He goes to America. He's exiled in Hollywood for a while. And he makes some really bad English language films, uh, which uh, dilutes his, you know, his output a little bit, his filmography in general, which maybe isn't fair. Um, but it, it's, it's he's a force, obviously. He's like, you know, one of the forerunners of great world cinema in general, um, so much of his sentiments and his beliefs pop up in the films of uh, filmmakers I love moving forward. So even if I'm not a super fan of Renoir, I, I completely acknowledge his place in history and film history and where they, that, that would lead from there and the filmmakers that he would influence moving forward. Um, but specifically, it's funny because we were talking about black and white uh, French films uh, right before the war. I love that. I love those films too. And when I think about Renoir in terms of that, he almost seems like a poser in a lot of ways when you talk about, you know, uh, poetic realism, which he's highly associated with. I think of films like Le Jeur Celeb, uh, Quad de, uh, de Brume, Pepe Le Moco, yeah. which are definitely, you know, films that, you know, inspired film noir and the idea of fatalism. Uh, they're crime films, but really they're more existential melodramas and they are exquisite. They're absolutely exquisite. When I think of, well, what is Renoir's, you know, relationship to that? I think of a film like uh, The Bet Humane and it feels like a phony version of that. You know, I feel like he almost became too stylized and too much of the system, the establishment, <laughs> you know, before, uh, even though it was, you know, very much what he inspired. Um, so it's, it's hard to plan a place those films. And what, so when we come to a film like this, like Crossroads, which again is compared to those other films is definitely a crime movie, definitely a detective movie. It gets interesting because it's great. <laughs> you know, he can, he's, he can do, he can do standard straight up crime detective movies. Uh, and I wish I'd had time to read the Simonon book uh, that it's based on. So I had more of a reference, but obviously uh, my quickest comparison is the movie that was made the following year, which was Julian Duvive's um, La Tête d'Homme, right? A Man's Head, which yeah. is also based on a uh, Simonon McRae novel and is much more straightforward it's almost like a Columbo episode actually, because in that yeah. one you see the crime happen, you know exactly who did it. And it's just watching McGray catch up, you know, watching him figure out how it was done and getting the people involved to confess, you know, he knows what happened. It's just, how is he going to get them ultimately? Yeah. Uh, so it kind of mixes and, and, and it focuses on the villain quite a bit too. So it really kind of becomes uh, those, those existential melodramas and this detective movie kind of interspersed and kind of becomes the same thing. Of course, Duvivet did um, uh, Pepe Lamoco, right? Yeah. Uh, with Gaban stuck in uh, Algiers in the Casbah. That's uh, Sean Gaban movie, is it? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for I sure. love Pepe so much. It's, it's, it's fucking great. Someday um, I hope to have a thousand widows. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so this is my long way of just going around saying, you know, uh, you kind of, it's easy to look at Grenoir as I think a lot of people look at Kurosawa in Japan, you know, where he's, you know, clearly a master and clearly uh, a forerunner to world cinema but you know everyone thinks he's oh but it's so conventional it's such an obvious thing to say the greatest french director was renoir you know does that make sense yeah i think it i think it does you know we've talked about renoir a lot 
me and you for the site, off the site, just kind of talking about him. And in Truffaut's book, in the, the films in my life, his chapter on the silent film directors who sort of transitioned to the sound era, uh, I think almost all of them transitioned to the sound era, is called The Big Secret, right? And that's where he writes about Renoir and The Big Secret. And to me, Renoir has always felt like The Big Secret, but nobody's told me the secret yet right where he really is a filmmaker who i don't connect with uh in a way that makes me go aha ever i watch rules of the game and i go that's fine and then i read Truffaut say it's the film of films probably the greatest french film ever made terence rafferty who i love call it a miracle and a constant wonder and i go huh i don't get it but Mm -hmm. what i would say is there's filmmakers that I see and I go, I don't think there's anything there that are beloved, like um, David Fincher or Stanley Kubrick, where the more I look at them, I go, nah, there's nothing there. There's just nothing of interest here to me. I think, I think these guys are basically using style to bludgeon people in the face and they don't actually have that much to say. Whatever they have to say, they've inherited from the source material they're adapting. Um, Renoir is not like that. I watch his films and I go, there is a secret. People are whispering this secret around me and sharing that secret, and I'm just not in on it yet. And that's how I always feel with Renoir, is that no one's told me the big secret yet. But when I see his name on a list of the 10 greatest filmmakers, I go, that makes sense. I believe it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of my relationship to Renoir films is going through them and trying to hear that secret, trying to hear what's being whispered. And I can certainly say what works or what doesn't work about these movies and what I like about them or what I don't like about them. But I think the the main thing that I would want to say is that um, he... I do think there's something there. I think he deserves to be thought of as great without question, that that there's something about him that I haven't been let on in it, but it's unquestionably great. And the reason I like Night at the Crossroads so much, La Nuit du Carrefour so much, is that his similarities to Simenon and their sort of moral aesthetic philosophies, the synergy of them allows me to understand Renoir because I do connect so instantly with Simenon and love those books so much and get him so easily that um, I can understand uh, Renoir through Simenon. Is one and of through the gray as well. Yes. Because I think, you know, the thing that Renoir has said very often and other people say about him very often is that he wants to give his characters space to reveal their truth, right. To kind of like get into, yeah. uh, to get into them. And what is the function of McGray specifically in this movie, but to let these characters basically dig their own graves. Yes, um, that's, this is the, the essential. Images. Yeah. The McGrath thing is to move very slowly empty your mind of expectation and just understand the power of, I don't think anything. Right, mm-hmm. that's what Magret does over and over again. His assistant Lucas or Grandjean, the uh, the highway cop, will be like, "So what do you think?" And he'll say, "I don't think anything." And that's something Magret says over and over, where he he lets things go and empties his mind. And exactly what you're saying gives those characters moral space to uh, to get out into. 
Mm -hmm. And so for me, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, Simenon and Renoir. Now, I know you haven't read the book and you're not, you're like most Americans, you're not super familiar with Simenon. I think no, that that's I completely. Done, I own some of the books, but I just have never gotten to dig in. There's, when you've written, when there are 400 novels, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. where to fucking start? You know, it's, it's difficult to, to dive into them. I know. It's funny because like, there's, I think, 75 Magret books and people are always like, wow, you've read like 30 of them. You must know a lot about it. And I'm like, well, I've read less than half, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't feel confident saying Magret is this or that, you know, I've only read 30 of the fucking things, you know, 35 mm. or whatever it is. Um, but I do, I do think that as with Renoir, that um, with Simenon, the other thing about him is, is there's not actually a clear, masterpiece. Renoir, it gets said to be rules of the game, but if you compare rules of the game to Grand Illusion or La Marseille, it, those are much more epic in big films. Or Elena and her men, those are movies that are much more obviously making a play for masterpiecehood. You know, mm -hmm. they're trying to be the big magnum opus works much more than rules of the game, which is, it feels a little to me like he's like, why don't I do another Boudot type thing? You know? Yeah like a yeah. kind of goofy society comedy. Of course. Yeah, yes, with social implications. Mm -hmm. and, um, and same thing with Simenon, where I can tell you what the most well-known uh, Magret books are. I have no idea why Yellow Dog is the famous one. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to, to guess why some of his books are are more well known than other books, you know? And certainly I, not compared to Christie, where it's like the famous ones are justifiably famous, you know? Yeah, or there's like just certain things get picked out to be made into the to the most famous ones. And generally, when you read them, you know, we were talking about Poe off the air, where it's you you read Telltale Heart, and that's better than you know the Purloin Letter. It just is. You know what I mean? And yeah. so you understand why ones are plucked out to be uh, more well-known than other ones. With Simenon, it's like Renoir, where I'm sort of like, you know, rules of the game, I don't even think is overtly his best, even if you don't accept that it's Night at the Crossroads, which I think is fine, because Night at the Crossroads is a strange movie. I think Tony and Crime of Monsieur Lang are overtly better than rules of the game i think it's you know? a crime that tony is not considered the, his rules of the game you know is yeah. not considered the essential renoir even though i will concede that rules of the game feels the most renoir of his films uh, yeah. i think tony if, if you if you're buying into everything that renoir is supposed to be about then tony is the most successful of them hands down but but renoir also rejects Tony, it's one of the ones he speaks badly of, and he has a tendency to speak badly of his own movies. He mm -hmm. calls it an attack of realism that he seems to regret of when, and when you want to film, I forget the exact phrase, you want to film every texture accurately in front of your camera. And I think to him, he's against 
what he perceives as realism. And I like that about him. I like the marionette puppet show opening La Chienne. I like the stylization of um, of Grand Illusion. I like the stylization of French Can Can and Golden Coach. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. like musical numbers. I like sort of, sort of swooming weird uh, comedy. I like that he does that stuff, but I think that Tony is better. Tony is a fully realized movie without wonky parts. But I also yeah. know that that's part of what people argue about him. Truffaut saying that like uh, the best movies are all failed movies like La Talante Rules of the Game. That perfection is sort of odious and the messy parts of it are what people like about these movies. Which is perfect for Crossroads specifically because the moments I think that are most distracting and don't work are the most stylized moments like the water running into the sewer, right? Or the dripping water into the glass, things that are like very specific style. the dripping in the glass. I don't know. I don't know. For me, it takes me out of it a little bit because... Uh, Renoir does not talk badly about this film. He only dedicates like three paragraphs in his book to it, but he talks about it as being like this real fun thing that they did where, you know, he said, we decided I raised the money myself. It's all my family members and my friends and Jacques Becker on the crew. Everyone is sleeping in a barn. And when, you know, it got foggy, we got, we woke everybody up and we went out and filmed, you know, he makes it seem like a real, you know, independent film that he worked on, you know, a real, um, ragtag sort of production and he obviously looks back fondly on it even though he doesn't have a lot of great things to say about the finished product i i love but that I, he um sold his father's paintings to finance his film career after he had been failing it's so like yeah. Renoir's story is so like over pampered fail son who succeeds just because he has so much money and influence but i still love him <laughs> anyway but that ragtag production is reflected in the film in that it feels like a weirdly uh, unexact, almost incomplete sort of experiment that isn't entirely successful. I think that that's what that's, that's where its charm lies, and I think that's what I really love about it is that yes. you get that feeling in this movie that everyone is sort of throwing it together and trying things out just to see how it works, and I really like that about it. it but I should mention the movie is modest as hell, like yes. a regret book. Um, and so when I say I love this movie, it's definitely the kind of movie that overpraise will crush. Godard called it the greatest, the only great French detective film and the greatest, <laughs> what is the exact quote? Godard the called it. The greatest French adventure, he called yeah, it. Yeah, the only great French detective film and indeed the greatest French adventure film. Like if you go in expecting A, an adventure film, just a ludicrous description. That's of the like, (laughs) did you know Wild Bunch is secretly a musical variety of film criticism that's so popular? Um, Grand Illusion is the great adventure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's overpraise will crush this movie. You know, I love that this movie is so languid. I think that it's actually Renoir achieving an ideal self that he resisted. It's the rabbit hunt sequence of rules of the game expanded to feature length. It's people wandering around, revealing relationships in oblique ways, getting distracted by like task at ham, by the task at hand. And, And it's just, its rhythms are so languid, so lacking in urgency while still remaining tense and dramatically tense that it is just like a Magret book, but it's also like 
what Renoir, I feel like, was after and resisted. I feel like his tendency towards comedy is him being afraid to be, uh, uh, to pursue his own interests and pursue his own rhythms. It feels yeah. like, uh, I got to make this interesting now. Like, it feels like Renoir out. at the crossroads, you know? Yes. <laughs> like he really, like, just, again, watching this after La Chienne and Boudot is just blows your mind just just what he's willing yeah. to do in this one and how much more technically advanced it seems than those films he really is trying to do something different and kind of experiment in ways that are interesting and fun yeah. and i don't know if it's you know more uh, simonon or renoir but obviously in retrospect this film seems very prescient uh mm -hmm. if I, I would compare if i had to compare it to any movie it would be uh la corbeau you know, oh, I think yes, that it feels yes, like yes. a film with a theme of collaboration and conspiracy in a provincial French town. Uh, it feels like it's setting up, you know, occupation and you know, collaboration and how you can't trust, how literally anybody can be a criminal and anybody can have a past that's going to come back to haunt them again. So just in terms of that, uh, even though it's a modest plot, it seems to have huge ramifications thematically. So yes, and Renoir like draws those out. Film. Yeah. yeah, Renoir draws out the um, racial and anti-Semitic qualities that are in the uh, background. Xenophobia, yeah. Yeah, he mm -hmm. puts nationalism on the forefront. And I agree with you. I'm just looking at my notes. Far more prescient than his other films, which don't seem to see World War II coming. That's mm -hmm. rules of the game. The history of rules of the game is it was made famously terribly received as 170 minutes. He kept whittling it down, trying to get it to be more popular. It was hated by French people. The, the standard story is the reason it was hated by French people is it was being a critical of French society right as they were entering World War II. And it was like, this is not the time for this. Get this out of our face. Yeah. And I think that a lot of Renoir's movies don't, they have a naivete that I find winning, but it's an optimistic naivete. And when World War II happens, he can't get it back. The war mm -hmm. kills him as an artist. And I understand people love Golden Coach, French Can-Can, um, Elena and her men. I get that people like his 50s international co-production movies. But what I would say about those movies, they really remind me of Seijun Suzuki's Taisho trilogy, where I look at them and I'm like, yes, these are overtly artistic. You clearly are expressing yourself clearly. This is what you, this is how you want to be remembered, these three movies, you know? But I don't think it, I don't think it actually is. You know what I mean? Yeah. You yeah. go, I don't I think exactly this is you actually mean. you. These are beautiful. These are great movies. You clearly think of them as your truest self, but I don't think they are. I think his truest self is Night at the Crossroads and Tony. And I find it very easy to connect those movies, just even their relationship to, to the outside world and small towns and kind of 
messy plots that don't go where you think they're going to go at all. And, and sort of almost stories that are almost devoid of a main character, even though Magret is the star, mm-hmm. there's so many other people that are just as important to Night at the Crossroads. And then Tony even more so. I always think it's crazy that it's called Tony. Tony's just yeah. one guy out of like seven people <laughs> that are all equally important in that movie. Absolutely. And McGray is not even involved in the big action scene from this movie. He's not in the car chasing down the gangsters after they've, you know, shot up the gas station. Which is so cool. I love that sequence. Yeah, no, it's really neat. Just the the headlights in it. And uh, one thing I I don't know where to bring this up, but I thought it was cool. They keep using the word safe cracker in this movie, right? Which the French translation is uh, car fort, which sounds so much like car four, like crossroads. (laughs) Interesting. I thought that was I thought that was neat because I kept thinking, are they saying crossroads? Why? But it says they're saying safe cracker. <laughs> A night at the safe cracker. Has this been completely mistranslated? <laughs> the pink smoke translation team is is on the case. But, but yeah, the the the, uh, the car the car chase is great. It's fun. Uh, it makes sense that Jacques Becker was you know involved in this movie you know because obviously he would have he would end his the greatest are we in agreement the greatest French crime film of all time Tuesday the greatest Disney. crime film of all time yeah with uh, with an amazing car chase that is just a rocking action sequence <laughs> I yeah. think has no equal yeah totally kick ass I bet yeah. You're right that Becker probably had a hell of a lot to do as the AD on that sequence, which doesn't feature uh, many of the main actors in it. It was probably right. Becker driving around with them, telling everybody what to do with that. Um, me, yeah. There's actually a line, because we uh, from, this is, again, unrelated, but I'm just looking at my notes, in the Simenon that I think explains why I think Simenon and Renoir are such a great match, which is Magret stepped outside into a bath of warm sunshine and on the road to a round view, a yellow butterfly led the way, right? Mm. What could be yeah. more Renoir than that? Who loves to put animals in his movie? You know, the black cats and Tony and La Chienne, the snail on uh, the Baron's hand in the lower depth, right? When they fall asleep in the field and he sits up with a snail on his hand. That's like such a Magret Simenon detail. All and the, the giant tortoise that comes out of nowhere. In this and, and Night at the Crossroads, exactly. And a giant yeah. tortoise led the way. <laughs> sitting on her bed well you know they're decadent foreigners you know how they are <laughs> i know how the danes are they have and, one room that apparently is just nothing but leaks and dust <laughs> yes well they that's also very, have this exotic pet turtle <laughs> yeah well that's the thing is like you're that's part of the giveaway is that like she just sits around seeming to do nothing and nobody's keeping house you know, and it makes sense on a certain level if they're from an aristocratic background. But the idea is also supposed to be like, this is not a woman who comes from a good household who accepts this, you know? Hmm. Uh, Again, that's a a dated way of thinking about it, but it's supposed to be a little bit of a tell. And in the book, he makes all of the food and stuff for them. You know, like when they want beer sandwiches, he's got to do it. And in the movie, you see that too, where she sort of barks at him in the first scene, aren't you going to offer Magret anything? You know, Mm -hmm. like, in that sort of chirpy-ish way. It is funny, too. This movie is so, it's obviously as proto-noir as it can be in 1932. This movie is a film noir, you know? Even Mm -hmm. more so, you know, La Chienne is famously remade as Scarlet Street, one of the towering film noir achievements, right? 
This is way more of a film noir than La Chienne, which is still, I think, ultimately a, what you're saying, a Renoir comedy of errors, you know? Yeah. But La Chienne does not feel noirish at all. This movie feels completely noirish. It feels like it invented noir. It does. It really does. It's photography is alone. It's just, you know, you watch it and you're like, I can't believe this wasn't made years later, you know, when this was sort of the norm of getting characters to kind of come in and out of the darkness and be running around. Uh, obviously Renoir would have like a few night scenes that he'd experiment with uh, in other films, but they, none of them feel like this. None of them feel um, as very specifically dark as this film does or the shot of uh lucas going to the hotel and his silhouette just against the trees yeah. uh, it's a beautiful beautiful shot or the um shot of of magret in the field where he's trying to find the shooter and the cab driver is pointing the, the lamp at him and he's like turn the headlamp off i can't see anything because of the headlamp and the taxi driver thinks he wants the lamp shined on him so the right. shooter gets away that's a beautifully noir scene it's basically a spotlight in a black frame you know right and elsa obviously being sort of a proto femme fatale in her own right you know sort no of question trying to be slinky and seductive but in a very kind of clumsy way you know with McGray yeah. uh, it's interesting that the film ends with them kind of holding each other in this sort of idea that they could maybe hook up after she gets out of jail uh, is, a, is a weird way to end the film but yeah. very noir-esque though I'll say that. And very, and very Renoir-ish that's also mm. not, not in the book her saving him uh, from the shooter and him being like hey maybe we can see each other is not in the book one, one thing that I think it, you know I, th- I think that um, is in the book that I'm surprised isn't more in the movie is the idea of crime as buffoonery that Michonette versus Elsie is ridiculous in the book and so much of the criminals are buffoons. That's mm-hmm. a very Renoir idea actually that criminals are not dangerous. They're, cl- they're dangerous because they are clowns. You know, that yeah. this is not moral gravity. You know, it's what's wrong with that humane as presenting these criminals as fundamentally tragic, poetically tragic heroes. Renoir, I don't think, has that in them. I think he sees human tragedy as, as fundamentally a comedy, you know? And yeah, it's and weird he yeah. doesn't do more of this in Night at the Crossroads. It's very comedic to have these guys at the gas station say, well, we're going to go out for some food. And then when we cut to them at the restaurant, they're all dressed like gangsters. And he's like <laughs> pinstripe suits and hats. Uh, like that's just the, the gas station, you know, overalls are just their disguise. Uh, but you're right. Uh, when he has Jojo cornered and is, you know, uh, figuring out they've got the cocaine hidden in the tires and whatnot. Uh, it's a very comedic sequence, you know, where yeah. this poor guy is getting shoved around and making these <laughs> like really pathetic attempts to uh, overtake McGray. And uh, it's it's definitely done out in a way that's like McGray is, let, let's just be clear here. This detective is not in any danger. Even yeah. when the guys come up and there are five people with guns shooting at him and he's just standing there. It's like the poison scene all over again, where it's like, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. we're, we're not, there's no real harm that's going to be uh, befall anyone. There's no, tension which is funny when we talk about this being uh such a film noir kind of thing because tension obviously is a big deal later on in uh noirs but it, but i think the renoir touch is that things can be have the kind of dark feel of a film noir without necessarily being suspenseful or having any kind of forced tension added to it yeah it's though it is funny too just to to talk about the divergences even a little more uh, when 
one thing that Renoir didn't import, which again was a little bit of the comedic, when Magret gets flustered and angry in the books a lot. He kind of screws things up or things don't fall his way and he gets angry. And there's a great part in the book where he goes in to bust Michonette finally, right? And because mm-hmm. um, he realizes Michonette is giving the signal in the upstairs window. And he also is like, I don't think that's actually Michette in the upstairs window. I think it's a dummy he's put up there to deceive me. And they go into Michonette's house and as they kick in the door, they go in through the kitchen and there's a carafe of white wine that's almost empty and Magret drinks, grabs it and chugs directly from the carafe of wine and throws it down, right? Because he's angry and Michonette's gone. Then they go to get Elsie and Elsie's gone and he's so angry he bites his pipe in half, right? He bites <laughs> the end off of his pipe, right? And I love that stuff. And it's a little weird Renoir didn't include uh, more, of, more of that. But again, this is like a movie going down a different road than ever he went down. You know, it's easy to envision this movie getting more renoir up uh, in terms of the comedic and all of that. You know, I, I really want to know uh, whether or not they were included in the book is this magician doctor character who shows up. He's not a magician. There's actually two. I know he doctors. looks like a magician though. He's got the gloves and like the, and he has the uh, he's lanky and weird looking and uh, say to the guy. You know, like just definitely everyone is off put by this guy as soon as he enters, even McGray. And uh, who kind of barks at him to stay out of the way. No, that um, is in the book. The doctors show up. It's a doctor shows up and then a surgeon shows up, I think is what it is. And both when they show up, they come in like, I'm the important person here and immediately see the people in handcuffs and Magret and have this like, uh, or, uh, or I can go upstairs. It's these, these moments that are like, what's going on here? And Magret's like, cram it. Doc, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, okay," you know, and it happens twice in the book. I don't know if you found up. this. <laughs> I don't know if you found this character as weird as I did, though. I mean, he comes off like more of an undertaker. That's why I felt like he was kind of a weird comment on what was going on, where uh, JoJo seems so off put by him immediately because. <laughs> He seems like death has just showed up to collect him or something like that at the crossroads. Um, And it's a weird, weird character. And especially when uh, he's a kind of very religious painting uh, framing of when uh, they bring uh, Carl, you know, the wounded Carl up into the, uh, into the house and he's kind of flayed out in a certain way. And then he comes in with all the blood on his hands, you know, it's, uh, and especially with what we were just talking about, this not feeling necessarily dangerous in any way. Uh, this character seems out of place in like a kind of fundamentally strange comedic way. Yes. I think that I I do know who you're talking about. I didn't have that as big of a reaction to him. I was more focused on Elsie in that scene, which I I thought was interesting to give her. uh, Again, this is taken from the book where when it seems like Carl's finally going to die, she suddenly has a conscience and she's suddenly like, her relationship to him is ambiguous. Like she's not capable of being good to him, but she does care about him. And it actually, her character reminded me a lot. She's very much... uh, uh, a Renoir character in the book, she's de- described as being one of those women who lie as easily as they breathe and maybe even wind up believing all the stories they tell, right? Oh, Which that's is, exactly how they describe uh, What's Your Face in La Chienne, right? That she yeah, lies Lulu. all the time. 
She's yeah. always sincere. She lies all the time. And the girl in the lower depths who gets mm. all of her ideas about romance from the old novel she keeps under her pillow. And she tells the stories about her great romances. And the other guy's like, you took that from the novel you have under your pillow. It's the exact same thing. You know, the exact same yeah. version of like, yeah. she's always sincere. She lies all the time. That's another great uh, moment of framing too, where you see McGray and uh, Elsa in the mirror in the uh, in the room where they're treating Carl. It's a really great shot. Yeah. Oh, the other big Lashian connection that I love was uh, because you know the big change is Elsie doesn't hook up with Michonette in the movie, and she does in the books. And Renoir adds the line about Michonette being in love with Elise and thinking he has a shot, and he doesn't. And Oscar says. You know, essentially, can you believe this clown? He thought this and him with the mug of a department store cashier, which is exactly what in La Chienne, where he's a cashier who's <laughs> like an ugly guy who thinks the woman's in love with him, which is exact. And he's a cashier, too, which yeah. is the exact same thing. <laughs> and it's funny that he changes it like women don't fall in love with guys who look like that. You know, they're <laughs> foolish to believe they could ever be loved. But then you picture what Renoir himself looked like in the roles he cast himself in movies, which is, again, as like the tubby clown in Labette Humane who gets blamed for the murder and famously as Octave and, and Rules of the Game, where I think that he probably identifies. It's never cruel. I think that he probably identifies with the Missionette characters. I think there's probably I a think measure sure. of, of self-loathing to the sort of like ugly tubby guy who's in love with beautiful women. Yeah, for sure. And he wanted Pierre to play Octave, right? Yeah. Uh, in Rules. So that's kind of an interesting connection. Pierre is uh, much, much different physically than, than Jean. Yeah. So that would have been a completely different type of character. Yeah, and I also love... <laughs> Not to be too mean about it, but when Michonette, there's a shot of him running away and just him waddling across the field. It's such like a funny, like envisioning that guy as a criminal when he's like running away and just this guy who's like, barely, he's like his, you know, he's Mr. Five by five, five feet tall and five feet wide, you know, just like can barely, can barely move. Um, but I honestly love it. I honestly yeah. I also wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about the, the casting in this movie. You, you haven't read many of the Magret books. Do you, I guess it wouldn't make sense to ask you, do you have anybody who you picture as Magret, who is like good casting for Magret, or is that just beyond the, the scope of your interest? You know, because Pierre does play Magret in this movie, Pierre Renoir, Jean Renoir's brother, who, as you just mentioned, was supposed to be. Right. Part of, so again, part of sort of the whole sort of family feel of this production that he cast his brother as the lead role. Um, so yeah, so again, this is the first version of McGray on screen that we would get. Uh, and then the very next year, we'd have Harry Barr in uh, Tete Dalme playing a very different kind of McGray, a more seasoned sort of as whereas this one kind of comes in, reads the situation, and as we've discussed, you know, kind of lets these characters kind of build their own gallows. Um, the Harry Bauer version is a lot more sympathetic to what's going on, a lot more frustrated by uh, the vice and the, the 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 criminality that he experiences. And this one comes in and he says almost immediately, "We're going to need a van with thirty guys to come to this town." Literally. With 40 minutes left in the movie, he says, I'm, I'm wrapping this thing up. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. He comes in and reads the situation so quickly. Um, and whereas the uh, Harry Bauer version in uh, the 
the DDA film obviously is in front of the criminals and knows what's going on. Uh, there's a lot more, what word am I looking for here? It's, it's regret and it's sadness coming from him. So yeah. I don't know if Simonone pre- pre- prefers his McGray to be um, disappointed and disillusioned or just sort of on top of things and, and smarter than everybody, you know? He's unreadable. And I think that okay. McGrett is always trying to empty his mind. And he's somebody who like in uh, one of the things I like at the Night at the Crossroads book that's not in the movie much is that like tiredness is a theme and motif. It opens with the interrogation scene of Carl and they can't break him. Carl's been so aristocratically raised that he's able to just stand politely with good posture for like 18 hours or something like that. And McGrett and the other detective, Lucas, that he's doing the interrogation with have to keep passing each other off because they can't just get anything out of Carl. And so tiredness, McGrett then immediately has to go to the small town. He takes a taxi because he's so tired instead of taking the train, right? And he just never sort of gets untired for the rest of the book. And he's constantly taking little naps and things and doesn't have a chance to sleep. And he's also, people are always like, what do you think? And he's like, I don't think anything. He's an imposing presence who's unreadable is what Mm -hmm. he constantly is. Who I always picture playing Magret is um, Gunter Lamprecht, like in full Franz Bieberkopf dress from Berlin Alexander Platz. Like a hefty, imposing, guy who you still are not sure what he's thinking at any given time. I think, I think Pierre Renoir is not bad casting and plays it uh, okay. Um, but I think that, that he's almost more animalistic, you know, that he's somebody, when I think of, of Magret, the things he does is he goes and looks at stuff. He sits down, he gets a little angry, right? And then he wants to eat and have a drink and a smoke, you know, like that's Magret shit yeah a film that i really want to see i have not yet is uh the man on the eiffel tower uh from 1949 and have you seen that one no i haven't seen that one as, as so you mentioned <laughs> as you mentioned he has not crossed over you know to america very often doesn't get a lot of american adaptations but this is one of them uh it's interesting it was actually the first american film shot in color in paris and charles lawton played Magret. oh that's great casting. which seems like yeah that's probably on the nose but what's interesting too about that production for i mean, kind of throw this in the face of uh people who love to say night of the hunter is the greatest uh film that was only that was by a director who never made another movie because Irving Allen was the director of this movie, right? Yeah. Uh, he and Lawton did not get along. So he was fired almost immediately after Lawton threatened to quit. Um, and they didn't have a replacement in mind. So Burgess Meredith, who was the, uh, you know, a supporting actor in the movie took over and Lawton directed all of Meredith's scenes. So they kind of switched the direction back and forth. Because Meredith famously was the ruiner of Renoir's Diary of a Chambermaid (laughs) version that his producerial meddling turned that into one of the sheerly shittiest movies ever made. So that's fascinating. I like that connection. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, don't work with Burgess Meredith is what I'm learning from this. Uh, But Um, Eiffel Tower was a film that Irving Irving Allen actually ended up buying back from uh, RKO. Uh, to suppress it. He had uh, control of all the prints. So people thought it was actually lost for a long time when they couldn't find a copy of it. And it was only uh, about 20 years ago, I think that it resurfaced again. Oh, interesting. Um, well, yeah. it worked because I haven't heard of it before this moment. <laughs> I know, right? Good work. Uh, could be, could be uh, interesting to check out though. I saw, I'm definitely going to check it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Lawton, um, I think is an interesting, you know, seems like he would be on the, on the spot 
Yeah, for the, uh, give him a big greasy mustache and you're 90% of the way there. Um, I also think it was interesting, the Carl, Anderson, and Elsie, the Danish non-brother and sister in this movie, do you know anything about those two actors, George Corda and Winna Winfred? Nothing. This is basically George Corda's only role. He's supposedly also in Testament of Dr. Mabuse, but I went through and looked for it and cannot find him. These are his only two credited roles. And I think this movie to me has a lot of interest in finding a character actor like that to sort of powerfully inhabit this role and be so memorable. And then he disappears and is not anything else. And he feels more like, oh, that's the famous movie star than anybody else in the movie, I think. Yes. He, he dominates the movie while being the only, this being his only thing. It's very fascinating. I don't know any of his background. And very similar with Winna Winfried, who plays Elsie, who's not in many more movies. I think she has like five or six credits, but this is like her big one. And I think she's excellent. I think she's much better than like, you know, uh, Janie Marisi and La Chienne. You know what I mean? I think that she has something very perfect about her in this role and again like you're saying i'm shocked she's not a famous movie star in some way you know you see her and she's the perfect mix of like sexy and naive and duplicitous you know she's always sincere she lies all the time she perfectly inhabits this in some way and you know her rapport with the turtle is phenomenal (laughs) some great lady and turtle acting you know i can't think of anyone who had as good a rapport with it. That's necessary for a Renoir film. How maybe, good is your animal rapport? You know, <laughs> are you able yes. to hold a kitten successfully? <laughs> for sure. And yeah, she's just a she's just a hairstyle away from Simone Simone for sure. Yes, I mean, she's you know that close to being blindingly uh, distracting presence on screen. You know who who her presence and look reminds me of a lot is Barbara Stanwyck. She reminds uh, me of, of Barbara Stanwyck, especially um, early like Ball of Fire era Barbara Stanwyck. Very similar haircut, very sort of similar slightness and sharpness to her features with like energy behind it. And like charm and sexiness and, and humor to her in some mystery. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And that's interesting, you know, talking to you about it, you described the film as uh, confusing does, it's one of those things where I see it and I understand what the Veronal is for, which is a barbiturate <laughs> and what's going on and why he wants to get her over by the painting because he looks at it and it's crooked. Does Do those details come across at all in the movie? Are you able to follow what's happening in this movie? I definitely had to watch it twice <laughs> to really appreciate uh, all those little details. And, and maybe confusing is the wrong word. Maybe complicated is what I'm looking for only because there are so many people involved. Uh, you know, there's um, the gunman, the, the actual murderer that they're trying to weed out at the end. Uh, yeah. There's the subplot of her drugging uh, Carl so she can have her lovers come in and, and entertain them. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot involved. And even to the point where after I watched it the first time, I couldn't remember if the murder actually was directly involved with the smuggling or rather, yeah. or if the, the diamonds were sort of a side thing that um, mission a was involved with more yeah. than the um, more than the actual dealers at the, uh, or the, or the, the uh, more than the actual smugglers at the gas station. 
it's fascinating because the book is a literal locked room mystery, you know, the subgenre. Do we have to explain to listeners what a locked room mystery is? Locked room mystery is a subgenre of, of mystery novels where you have a room that a crime is committed inside of. It's locked. It's snowed outside the window, so there are no footprints leading in. You know everyone must be locked within this room to solve this murder, right? The, the book is a variation on a locked room mystery where you have Elsie locked in her room every night, where it's a literal locked room mystery where Carl's locking in her room every night. So Magret senses that there's something up with her and she's involved, so he's got to piece together what's going on with the locked room. And that's a lot of the plot of the book and the film working out what's happening in the room is a big part of it, which the book discards. Where he literally has to discover a key almost by accident <laughs> yes. to be able to piece together everything that's going on. Yes. And in the book, it's actually the book says this could be called the case of the three mistakes, right? And I can't remember what all of them are, but one of them is she moves the phonograph from the living room to her bedroom when she's supposed to have been locked in there, right? And, uh, and another mistake is that she doesn't know what aristocratic things are called. Like she keeps saying she grew up in a castle and calling it the castle instead of it would just be called the house if she was actually an aristocrat, right? Mm. And I forget what the third mistake is. It's something with Oscar, you know, where he makes, makes some kind of a show of something. And then those mistakes don't really factor into the, uh, the movie. And I was kind of always expecting, but what I, what I like about the movie is, is that it doesn't seem wrapped up in um, the story. That's one of the things I like about it is that it is a mood piece and that it, there's something about the realism it brings to its sense of crime that I like because it's not trying to fit the pieces together perfectly, that it's more about building the moments. And you mentioned the water drop in the glass earlier, that sort of when they're interrogating him, there's a uh, glass that's in a, in a sink in the station and there's just drops of water hitting it. And I love those moments that are unrelated to the plot that sort of cuts the film out of time in some way and locates it in the real world, that it cuts it out of its story and pulls it away from its story. It reminds me a lot of the scene in La Chienne where Michelle uh, Simon is shaving and there's the little girl practicing piano across the courtyard, right? And it's this scene that has nothing to do with anything and it sort of cuts the film away from the story and puts it back in the real world. And I love those little details that Renoir is constantly finding. Yeah, no, it's great. The water imagery, I think, kind of connects this idea, which is sort of part of the poetic realism of the era, which is that, you know, the character kind of comes into an area where they are invading or they don't belong. Uh, the, the lower depths, as they call it, right? The kind of class yeah. distinction between them. Uh, so when uh, McGray walks into that room where there's the dripping water uh, and the, um, you know, bulls are collecting it at the bottom and realizes that this woman doesn't, you know, belong in a nice big house that she doesn't come from uh, an aristocratic background, uh, kind of draws it to that. And then also sort of the idea just that the, the characters, the detectives, when they bring in the, th the 30... Uh, policemen into this area um are bringing to it like a visibility that it wouldn't have had otherwise that it would have just been this quiet sleepy town where they could do anything they wanted where everyone could be evil if they wanted to be um uh the way in a lot of red wars films where uh 
water cuts into the landscape where you know you kind of have these characters and what do they say well obviously Boudot gets washed away at the end of uh, Boudot save from drowning at mm-hmm. kind of forming a circle from when he tried to kill himself earlier in the movie um, they say oh he's washed away just like he was you know when he's he washed into our lives and now he's washed away from our lives again this intrusion into this world where the person doesn't belong so these characters kind of come into this crossroads like a tide you know so i kind of like the water mg for that reason although i will agree, i will say again that it feels weirdly distracting in a way that other stylistic choices in this movie don't yeah now i should admit here that i've never actually seen budo say from drowning all of my notes are based on down and out in beverly hills from 1986 <laughs> reasonable reasonable so let me ask you then do you you talking to you you it feels a little like you think this is a bit of of a failed film Truffaut described it as one of his tentative films where along sort of the spectrum of his work do you do you place it like how do you organize Renoir in your mind and where do you put this film in it I guess that's the initial question I've asked you but let's return to it well in that in that regard I consider it a magnificent failure you know, I mean, yeah. if, if there is anything about this film that doesn't work or isn't satisfying in the way a film like Tony is so, as you said, complete, you know, uh, it definitely seems weird uh, compared to the other things in his filmography. And this last week I've watched tons of Ren- all of those movies, you know, just to kind of compare them. Um, but I love it for being that outlier. And I love the idea that Renoir it's 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 a crossroad again it's a cross i hate to say it, but it's a crossroads for it more, you know it, it really is. is him going from these early films and these ideas of style and of course la Chien has the famous sort of uh camera coming out of their dumb waiter to kind of start the movie yeah. which is sort of an experimental shot but he obviously wanted to do more of that and i think this goes from la Chien and boudot it just takes his aesthetic and his style miles and miles away from it so that when he comes into um I can't remember what the next one is. Is Monsieur Lang? Whatever is next, uh, or Tony? Whatever is next, it no, just no, no. feels. It's it's um uh the the Chotarden Company, which is I don't I've never actually seen that one. Me neither. So, but it's but right after okay. that, it's Madame Bovary. Uh, so this is a transitional film for him all the way. So the 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 distance between his early thirties films and the ones that he would go on to, like Tony and. Uh, ultimately rules the game and grand illusion uh just and and a bit humane is just vast you know you could see the journey here in this film and again his appreciation of the way it was made the way they came together and you know kind of on a low budget and just kind of did it you know and just kind of did what and weren't restrained by having to put a picture of Emile Zola in you know, at the beginning of the movie or anything like that no well that that completely feels like hey remember everybody this is his fault you know, that's what that to me always feels like is like, you know, I didn't write this shit. Where, where's the credit for, where's the credit for Tony? The opening title card for Tony has that bizarre card, which is like, this is an original story by Renoir, written by Renoir, conceived of by Renoir, based on notes from my police officer friend who wrote a novel, where it's like, he wants to be like, with Labette Humane, it's like, this is some other guy's shit. And then with Tony, he's like, 
I know this is some other guy's shit, but this is mine. And <laughs> to me, Night at the Crossroads feels like Simenon. It feels like he can't shake the Simenon. He was such an adapter of things. So many of his biggest films and almost so many of his films are adaptations and he takes them and makes them their own. You know, he is, Bazan says that like, uh, uh, that he's an equal of creative to uh, Emile Zola or, um, or, or Guy de Maupassant, right? That, that he's one of their uh, equals, right? And he definitely is with Simonon, but this m- movie remains Simonon's, which I think is fascinating. It's one of the few times I feel like he made a good movie that he didn't take it completely away from the author. I think other times when he takes it completely away from the author, uh, like Lower Depths or, uh, or, or Bet Humane and makes it too renoir it gets ruined, you know, um, mm-hmm. and aren't, aren't great movies. And then there are times when it works, like Budo's Save from Drowning, where he takes a very unremarkable play and makes a very remarkable movie out of it, you know? Do you, do you know what Simonon thought of this movie? Has that been made record at all? There's so little. Simonon's one of those guys who just in the past 20 years has started getting translated. And I've, I've honestly, I'm sure, I'm not sure there is. Uh, but I've never read a biography on him. I've never read interviews with him. He's just not, he's just hasn't penetrated the uh, American cultural consciousness in a way to, um, for me to know much of what he thought about everything. He also was adapted so much. I'm sure he doesn't have much thoughts on like an early one that wasn't a success that, you know, blah, 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 you know, I'm sure. Why am I sure of that? I, you know, it could easily be be the case that even if I did read interviews, he wouldn't have much to say about it. Yeah, but I mean, again, just the immediate comparison to La Tete Om, which is a movie I like a lot, but this yeah. film just feels a, a miles above that in ideas and execution, everything. So, you know, there's <laughs> there's there, there's that that he obviously got Simonon just nailed him on the head, and I I agree with you. I think that he this one it just seems more satisfyingly laid back and willing to try shit out. Uh, Will you admit this, that this belongs neither, it's a proto-film noir, but it's not a noir movie ultimately. It's its own thing. And it's also not poetic realist. I think it's, it's not just Renoir at a crossroads. I think it's like crime cinema at a crossroads. And I think it's a path nobody went down until Becker and Sautet and then the French New Wave guys. That's what I think about this movie is that it's actually showing Touche Pas, Grisby, Latrue, and even banned Outsiders to a certain extent. And a little Clouseau as well, I would yes. say. Yes, yes. Uh, is also definitely. an outlier though. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anybody who would argue, well, I prefer his more developed films of the late 30s to this one. Yeah. You know, I would say, I think he got too overstuffed with some of those. I think I agree with you in that, you know, this just feels like something where he had just enough input into and brought just enough of the source into it that it is a entertaining and fun movie that has lots of interesting ideas and implications as well. Yeah, it's a remarkable film, whatever you think about it. I think you describing yeah. it as a magnificent failure. I think I can, I think I can uh, accept, even though I think the magnificence outweighs the failure in some ways uh, of this movie. What's quick, uh, Renoir top three. Oh, I never thought of my top three. Tony's always been my favorite. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I guess if I'm thinking about it, and it's funny, I was kind of taken aback when you said it was your favorite earlier in the episode, but it might, it might be top three for me. It might. Yeah. This one might be in there. I don't know what the third would be. I'd have to think about it. La Chienne, maybe. La Chienne is great. I think my top three are very, very similar. I think it's Tony, Prime of Monger Lang, and, uh, and this are my top three. But those also form like a spine of filmmaking style. You know what I mean? Mm, that, yeah. that those are very coherent. But I think your observation uh, of Renoir at a crossroads, this movie is the path he didn't go down. He's the, he's the missionette who refused Elsie's advantage and didn't get involved <laughs> in the diamond smuggling murder scheme. That's what this movie is. I think. It is. And it's, it's remarkable for that, you know? And I, and I really don't mean failure in a negative sense at all. It's only problem. It. Just, there's no, as you say, just the way he does it. It's just the path he doesn't take ultimately. Not enough focus on baby shitting. That's my number one problem. <laughs> Need, needed more laxative for sure. <laughs> when, he, when he first finds the uh, the, dr- the 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 drugging the 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 uh, veronal. Yeah, the, when he finds the veronal, like it should have been laxative, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I made sure Carl was on the shitter all night so I could go bang <laughs> other dudes. Because um, that's the language this talks about. Well, John, I just <laughs> loved talking about this with you, and I and I do I've seen a movie like rules of the game like i think six or seven times now and i never fully get it but renoir is definitely something that i think that like it's it's you know the secret i keep trying to unlock and he's and talking to you about it is always good because most people take renoir at face value as this is one of the greatest ever and if you intimate i'm not sure i get it people go on the defensive always, especially with canonized filmmakers. And so being able to talk to you, who I think comes from a little more of my point of view about it, uh, is always very helpful for understanding and searching through these works for something. Very much so. And, you know, considering that pre-war black and white French crime sound films, uh, doesn't even have like a good name for it that everyone can agree on you know everyone goes with poetic realism but that it does, somber just doesn't realism yeah, that one it, fell out of uh out of style somber realism anyway I'm glad it did um the, the fact that it doesn't have a, a great name to, to you know the way the french new wave does to kind of un, give it an umbrella uh this film is hugely beneficial to kind of understanding that you know maybe these films aren't as connected as we all think that they are maybe this one is successful in ways that Lejeur Celeb isn't, you know, or even Pepe Lamoco, but it, uh, it's the same guy. It's the same yeah. guy who is in that deeply entrenched in that time in French cinema, uh, trying to get it figured out. And so as we're sort of trying to figure out these films and like how their connectiveness is important, I think this is a film that kind of tells you, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, it, it gives you more... Uh, space. Don't kind of think appreciate anything. these films. Yeah, don't just think anything. Observe. That wraps it up. Just That's observe. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, awesome, John. Have a good night. Bon nuit.